Hi there! You're about to listen to a vintage episode of the Under the Microscope podcast. While the content is still as relevant and as interesting as when it was recorded, our webpage has changed. You can now find us at thesciencetalk.com slash real-scientist-nano. Welcome to Under the Microscope. This series is brought to you by the Real Scientists Nano team. Our goal is to provide a platform where scientists can communicate their work and interact with the public. With that in mind, every week we introduce you to a scientist working in the field of materials and nanoscience. everyone, today we have with us Cameron Kilchrist, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Janssen Research and Development in California. Hi Cameron, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing very well. How are you? Wonderful. Looking forward to speaking with you. Let's Absolutely. Start... Great. Let's start with understanding your research journey. So how did you end up in your current research field? Sure. So, um... It's an interesting and sort of long story. So okay. when I was applying to college, I was sort of interested in two different careers at the same time. Um, I was interested in computer engineering and I was also interested in biology. So I actually started college as a computer engineering major. Um, and by one uh, happenstance conversation over dinner one night, a friend convinced me to change my major to bio, uh, biological engineering at LSU. And uh, she was telling me about all of the different things that biological engineers study and the different career paths available. So I was really interested in that. Mm -hmm. Um, Then about six months later, I was really interested in getting involved in undergraduate research. And I looked around the department at the different labs that were there. Um, And there was one lab in particular that was really interesting to me. Uh, That lab studied tissue engineering. So I joined the tissue engineering lab and learned a lot about how uh, materials interact with uh, biology and how those materials actually interact with um, cells and tissues um, on multiple length scales. Then um, I did summer research in that lab the first summer. And then the second year, I I think it was the second year, I took an elective um, about computational image analysis And in that course, I learned about the mathematical underpinnings of uh, image analysis and different um, binary operations that you can apply to images and ways that you can analyze images in a quantitative way. Um, And then I ended up doing a summer of research uh, with that professor as well. And we actually used a synchrotron to do micro-computed tomography. So essentially, we would shoot... um, high power photons through these samples as they rotated and collected shadows. And then from this, you're able to reconstruct a 3D representation of the density of that material um, in three dimensions. And then we were able to use the image analysis techniques that I had been learning about to actually analyze the distribution of those materials within this complex 3D matrix. Mm -hmm. Um, Ultimately, that was not what I was interested in doing with my uh, research career. So I went back to the tissue engineering lab Mm -hmm. Um, And as has happened a few different times in my research career, 
we actually ended up using some of those same techniques to study the materials that we were creating in the uh, tissue engineering lab. Mm-hmm. Um, so then when I was applying to graduate school, I knew that I was really interested in uh, biomedically focused uh, research applications. So I applied to grad schools all over the place, um, went on a few different graduate school visits. Uh, I interviewed with several different professors and ultimately I choice, uh, chose to join Craig Duvall's lab at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. In that lab, we studied uh, nanoscale drug delivery systems and the different biological barriers that those drug delivery systems face. Mm-hmm. Um, so my projects were kind of all over the place and sort of in there um, a little bit different than the typical projects in that lab. Uh, so my first project was actually looking at the molecular mechanisms of how one of our nanoparticles entered cells so well and how it was able to escape the endosomal barrier or end, um, endolysosomal system. So you can think of that essentially as a cell's digestive system that as it's taking in material from the outside, it's breaking down those things. And of course, our drugs, we don't want to be broken down. We want them to get inside the cell and have bioactivity. Right. Um, so we had a particular nanoscale drug delivery system that worked really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we identified a mechanism by which this nanoparticle interacts with the cell surface to cause really high levels of internalization. And then as the pH in the endosome drops, the material actually um, changes its conformation to interact with that membrane and disrupt it. Mm-hmm. So then in my second project, I was really interested in ways, it was actually, it was really difficult to study that question, um, right. largely because there had not really been a lot of research done on how to study those sorts of interactions. Um, there were a few different techniques out there, but they were really cumbersome. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was some emerging research about this intracellular protein called galactin-8 and how it actually binds to disrupted endosomes. So we wanted to mm-hmm. extend that technique uh, to use it as a screening tool to study endosomal disruption in a higher throughput. Um, so that was actually my second project was engineering these cells to express a mm-hmm. um, fluorescently tagged collectin-8, and then we were able to study endosomal escape in high throughput. And then finally, um, well, actually, as I was finishing up that paper, I uh, did an internship with uh, Roche in Basel, Switzerland, um, Mm -hmm. where I studied uh, some new drug delivery techniques for the cornea. Um, That was really interesting, and that was sort of how I knew that I was interested in a career um, even more closely within um, industry rather than academia. And then I went back to Vanderbilt to finish up my PhD. In the Mm -hmm. third project, I took essentially that second idea of using galactin-8 to look at endosomal disruption, and Mm -hmm. we created a new assay where we replaced the fluorescence with luminescence. Mm -hmm. So in this case, we actually had two different proteins, which each were tagged with half of a luciferase enzyme. And then when those two proteins would interact, the two pieces of luciferase would come together and form a functional enzyme inside the cell. So then when we applied the luciferin substrate, the cells which were undergoing active endosomal escape would actually show up as brightly luminescent when we looked at them with a very sensitive camera. Mm -hmm. So that was actually really cool to be able to see, um, you know, how our different drug carriers actually interacted with the endosomal membrane to cause uh, endosomal disruption. 
And then as I was finishing up my PhD, I was applying to jobs all over the place, thinking about what do I want out of my career? What do I want out of a postdoc? Um, what are the sort of parameters that I'm thinking about as I'm embarking on this next step of my um, career? You know, questions of, oh, do I want to chase money? Do I want to chase science? Do I want to, you know, be a purist and really study the interesting science that, uh, you know, will keep me up at night? Or do I want to just, you know, clock in and out for a paycheck? Mm -hmm. um, certainly, I've made my uh, my choices there, and I look forward mm -hmm. to talking about it with, uh, you know, everyone on Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, and so ultimately, I chose to do a postdoc within Janssen here in La Jolla. Um, I can't talk, unfortunately, about the research that I'm doing now, but it's very interesting. And um, I don't feel like I've sold out my scientific um, interest or integrity at all. Um, okay. So it's, it's really interesting to be able to do research within an industry setting where we have a lot more resources. And I know that if we uncover a really unique therapeutic modality, um, we have the resources that that will actually be brought forward into preclinical development. And if mm -hmm. everything goes well, you might actually see those discoveries in a medicine one day. Right. Um, so essentially, I've always kept um, sort of one eye on doing what's scientifically interesting to me mm -hmm. and, you know, always also kept an eye out for what is useful and interesting to society in terms of improving um, human health, you know, and I think that's what engineers really do is fundamentally we're problem solvers. Um, right. That's really what distinguishes engineers from scientists is that I'm interested in using science to solve problems. Mm -hmm. Okay. That, that's, that's been a very interesting journey, like finding ways and not like a straightforward thing. It was a bit of like going here, point A, point B, and it's like a zigzag of sorts. That's, yeah. And it was, it was never really planned out either. It was yeah. always just kind of, you know, I would, you know, keep, your eyes open for what's available and always be ready to do something different and interesting. Right. Okay. That's, that's wonderful. So where do you, where do you, where do you think, or where do you see, uh, does your current research that you cannot talk about, where does your current research fall in this big picture of this big puzzle of materials for nanoscience, this big field? Sure. Sure. So one thing I can say, um, you know, my PhD was about uh, self-assembling nanoscale drug carriers. So we would make uh, micelles and polyplexes of polymers and drug, and you put them mm -hmm. into solution, and the negatively charged um, species and the positively charged species interact to form these micelle structures. Um, so that, that was, right. you know, pretty common within nanoscience where we're looking at self-assembly and micelles on the order of, you know, tens to hundreds of micron, uh, sorry, tens to hundreds of nanometers. Um, yeah. Now I'm working with individual proteins. I'm thinking about how can we en engineer antibodies to do cool and interesting things in the body. Um, so antibodies yeah. are even smaller than a nanoparticle. Um, antibodies are about 15 nanometers across, nine millimeters, uh, nine nanometers tall, and about four nanometers thick. You can think of them as sort of Y-shaped um, the two top halves of the Y are both sticky for a specific antigen. And then the bottom part of the Y is called the FC region, and that interacts with immune cells. So in the body, naturally, mm -hmm. 
you have the two sticky bits finding um, bacteria or cancer cells that need to be destroyed. They'll stick onto that cell and then the FC receptor will signal to immune cells that it needs to kill um, or you know destroy this thing that the antibody has stuck to. So oftentimes in medicine, we're not interested in causing cell killing. We're interested in using that as a targeting moiety or you know, all sorts of different uh, behaviors like that. So it's been really interesting to learn about all of the different ways that antibodies interact with cells and immune cells and cell surfaces. And, um, you know, those interactions are happening on the nanoscale. Right. That is true. Yeah, that's super fascinating. That's, that's really cool. It's really, really cool. Okay, so it sounds it sounds to me that you do a lot of interesting pro interesting experiments, have been doing a lot of interesting experiments. So if you have to pick one like research project or sets uh, that you're most proud of or the most quirky one, uh -huh. uh, could you uh -huh. pick one? I know it's different probably, but pick one and explain it to us in simple ways. Sure. 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 Um, I think one of the coolest things that I've done, uh, and certainly, so I've done a lot of different things, but I think it's really satisfying to see a project, you know, sort of get wrapped up and and um, come to a place where you you feel like you have a whole story. Um, so my most recent project was right. really, um, it was one of those times when I didn't feel like I was, you know, just copying off of what someone else had done. Um, and that was the third right. project of my PhD, where we actually took um, different molecules or different proteins that interact with endosomes and labeled them with these two luciferase mm -hmm. fragments. Um, right. So what's interesting about that project is that we actually just published a preprint. Um, so if, if followers mm -hmm. are interested in checking out that research, we can have a nice discussion about why I chose to um, submit that as a preprint. That was actually my PhD lab's first preprint that we've put out. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward okay. to discussing that with uh, the followers. Wonderful. Okay. That's, that's, that sounds super interesting. And I'm looking forward to hearing about it on Twitter in form of threads or whatever you do and reading the preprint if it's available. Is it published already? Uh, it's available as a preprint. So it's not, it has not been peer reviewed. Okay. And it is not technically published, mm -hmm. but it's available as a preprint. And you can talk about it. Yeah, we can talk about it, of course. Hashtag okay. open science. Okay, that's good. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Okay, awesome. And um, I, I should also note the the plasmids that we developed yeah. for that project are also available through adgene.com. So if scientists are interested in um, using the tools that we developed, those tools are already available publicly. Uh -huh. That's that's very noble of you. Hashtag open science. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, cool. So I, I hope your research experience so far has been wonderful and will continue to do so in the future as well. However, if you had few wishes to improve your research experience, what would you ask for? And I'm not promising anything here. Yeah, of course. Um, I think some of the hardest things about a career in science is two different factors. Um, one, the training that you have to do to get here is a very long process. And essentially all of your PhD is typically done within one lab. And um, I'm, I've always been very uncomfortable with the amount of power that the PI, the principal investigator, 
has in those situations because you're essentially um, beholden to making sure, like starting and finishing um, mm -hmm. that chapter of your career in one place. And unlike other sorts of employment situations, um, you really can't leave until you've finished or you don't get your degree, right? Um, right. I think especially across the U.S., if you look at how um, those students are paid, you know, these are our best and brightest students that are going on to pursue PhDs, and yet they're making, um, you know, wages much lower than you would expect for someone with those uh, high GPAs and research experience and, um, you know, the best and brightest. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's that's one major problem that I think um, academia should think carefully about how can we address those inequities and, and treat our students like the next generation of scientific leaders that they are. Right. Um, and then another thing that I've been thinking a lot about is how research jobs are not equally distributed across the country and across the world. Right. Um, when you look out across, like, where is research in a particular field being conducted, you'll notice that almost inevitably those jobs are really concentrated in specific places throughout the world or um, may not be available anywhere near you, right? right? And so you get into a place where, oh, I want to do a, a research in this particular field, but that's not available in my country or in my state. If I go to this place and accept this job, I'll suddenly be extremely far away from my family. Mm. Um, and that's just something really hard to think about and, and not something that I really gave a lot of thought when I was starting my PhD, um, mm -hmm. you know, seven years ago. Right. So I really wish I had, I mean, I don't know that I would have done anything differently, yeah. um, but certainly I wish there were a high paying job doing what I want to do in my hometown where my family lives. But, uh, I guess La Jolla mm -hmm. is a, a nice second choice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so two wishes only. Only two wishes, yeah. Only two wishes. I've, I've actually, and, and that's because I've been extremely fortunate, actually. Um, I've had great mentorship along the way. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed my PhD lab. Um, I've always had the fortune to work in labs that had good funding and good resources. Um, so, so unlike some people, I, I haven't ever really struggled to have access to the tools that I need mm -hmm. um, to do my research. Uh, okay. So it's it's been fun in that regard. Um, I don't have too many complaints about the science side of things. Okay, um, you're well, fortunate enough. <laughs> I I think that uh, well, this gets back to our conversation about uh, preprints, but um, I think that sometimes reviewers can be. So peer reviewers, when you submit a manuscript, I think that sometimes their requests can be um, misguided, let's say, mm -hmm. and okay. they can sometimes ask for far more than should be expected right. um, without necessarily improving the manuscript. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think that peer review has really gone off the rails for what it was intended for, which was to make sure that things that we're publishing are scientifically sound and that the claims that we're making are supported by the data that we show. Right. Um, so, you know, in, in my mind, for most reviewer complaints, you should be able to address it with either a new experiment, which is how most reviewers review comments are um, addressed, or simply remove the sentence that you made a claim that caused this reviewer comment to arise. So if I claim that my system does X, Y, Z, 
Mm -hmm. um, I should be able to either give you an experiment that demonstrates that or remove that sentence from the paper. And both should yeah. satisfy your critique. Right. Um, and so I think it's really gone off the rails where reviewers are asking for very large experiments that may not actually even improve the paper. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think I wish that editors took a more active role in sort of curating what is requested by reviewers. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, I wish that reviewers would make more explicit what they consider to be a fatal flaw of a paper versus mm -hmm. a wish list of new experiments for a paper. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That, that is and, the reality of hard wish. Exactly. And <laughs> as you know, as you're going through that process, your research is hidden, right? Yeah. While your research is going through that peer review process, even if my science is 95% sound and we're arguing about the last 5%, mm -hmm. um, the entire paper is still being hidden. True. And yet yeah. you read papers and, you know, I've peer reviewed papers before and I can, you know, see like, oh, I would have totally complained about this particular thing in this paper. So, you know, I think we need to trust the scientific community to be able to make those decisions for themselves a little bit more as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes sense. That makes complete sense. Okay. Let's move on to the future. So what are you looking forward to in the next three months? Oh, um, so scientifically, I have a lot of uh, studies planned. Um, Which you cannot talk about. Yeah, I, I can't really talk about the specifics <laughs> there, but I'm very excited yeah. and hopefully um, I will be able to talk about those soon. Um, okay. I will say one exciting thing about this postdoc is that um, there is an expectation that I'll publish my research and that we'll do that in a rapid way. Um, but that process, you know, anything that I disclose does have to be screened by um, the legal team here. Um, but on a personal note, I'm really excited for some upcoming travel. Um, mm -hmm. I'm flying to New York to see one of my best friends uh, in late February. Um, right. And I'll, we'll be seeing Celine Dion live in concert. That sounds wonderful. Awesome. And before we let you go, what we want to understand from you is uh, what are the challenges that are faced by the field at the moment? So what are the questions that the scientists are working towards answering? Sure. So, you know, I think that when you look at the field, mm -hmm. it's been really hyped for probably the last 30 years right. that nanoscience is going to really change the face of humanity. Mm -hmm. And I think we've, the field has been around long enough that we can see that we're not quite delivering in the ways that we're hyped. Um, right. There have been some really exciting developments, but I, I think we should really be thinking about in our research, how can we be delivering on that promise that nanoscience mm -hmm. will change and improve human um, health, society? Um, mm -hmm. And are we really devoting our intellectual energy to problems that society faces? You know, I don't have to tell you about all of the problems that society is facing um, yeah. between new viruses, uh, you know, breaking out in China right now or uh, climate change, global warming, pollution, microplastics in the ocean, um, health inequities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we still have people in a lot of the world who are contracting lung cancer at really high rates from wood burning stoves. Um, right. You know, there's all sorts of diseases uh, in the developing world that we have effective treatments for, and those medicines just aren't getting into people's hands. Mm -hmm. um, we have a resurgence of um, people who don't believe in vaccines. So I think all of these things are, you know, 
so many science scientists are funded by public agencies that we really need to look at that as a responsibility to not only do the research that we've been funded for, but also think about how can we be improving um, the society around us with the training that has been paid for by the public. Right. And so that's something that I, I take pretty seriously in, in thinking about how can we improve the world around us so that we're leaving a better place behind. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I read in the literature a paper with, um, you know, where, where you just kind of scratch your head and, and think, like, why did someone do this study? Right. Um, you know, I'm all for scientific curiosity, but I think sometimes we need to think um, about the problems that we're trying to solve and how can we make an impact. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Wonderful. It has been lovely speaking with you, Cameron. Thank you very much for taking the time, and we look forward to your time on Real Scientist Nano. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for listening. To know more about us, please visit our website, realscientistsnano.org, and follow us on Twitter at realsci underscore nano.